Uh, we're in John 6 today. <clears throat> so imagine you work in an office. You've got a 15-minute break, so you head down to the break room to grab a cup of coffee and a snack. When you reach the break room door, you see two people in there, a man and a woman, co-workers of yours, and the man's hand is behind the woman's head, palm touching her hair, and he jerks it away the moment you see them. And you think, whoa. And you walk right on past and stop. Those two are together, and they're married to someone else. And you wait a moment, and then you walk in to see that she's red-faced, and that both of them are smiling awkwardly. She grabs her snack and leaves, and he nonchalantly says, hey, gets his soda, and then he leaves. And you think, man, I can't believe it. And he goes to church with me. Should I say something to his wife? And you worry about it all afternoon. That's all you can think about. And then you decide you better talk it over with your spouse before you do anything. So you took in the situation between this man and this woman in the duration of about a second through the space of a doorway. But you're convinced they're having an affair. And when you tell your spouse, he or she's convinced as well. You, you now have a different opinion of the man than you did yesterday. And you're pitying his unsuspecting wife. Okay? Now here's what really happened. A woman was waiting for her snack to drop to the bottom of the vending machine. The man was about to get a Coke when he noticed a box elder bug tangled in her hair. When he told her about it, she panicked and said, get it out, get it out. So he plucked it out, threw it from her, and it all took about a second. The second you reached the doorway. She was red-faced from panic. She was afraid of bugs. And, and you'll be red-faced from shame if you start spreading rumors about this couple. Wrong interpretations come from not getting context, from making judgments based on what you've seen in the moment through too narrow a lens. That happens in biblical interpretation, too. For example, many people have decided what the discourse in John chapter 6 is about while looking through too narrow a lens without getting context. For example, many scholars hold that the teaching in this chapter, which doesn't start until verse 26, <clears throat> is about the Lord's Supper. They point out that John does not include an account of the Lord's Supper. People have always wondered, why doesn't John include an account of the Lord's Supper? They point out that uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. And so they say that here John gives an alternate teaching about the Eucharist. I mean, doesn't Jesus in John 6 speak about eating his flesh and drinking his blood? And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, doesn't Jesus say the bread of the Lord's Supper is his body and the wine is his blood? So this teaching must be about the communion. I think that's like saying the man must be having an affair because the palm of his hand was against the woman's hair. See, we need to know the context. And in this situation, specifically, we need to know what is the sign to which this teaching is connected. Because you see, in the Gospel of John, John narrates seven miraculous events. He says, there's a whole bunch more that happened, but I'm only relating these to you so that you'll believe. 
he relates these seven miraculous events, which he calls signs, then follows up the sign with a related teaching from Jesus. To interpret the teaching while ignoring the sign will almost certainly lead to error. I think people who jump to the conclusion that the teaching here is about Holy Communion make that error. They not only ignore Old Testament background, which is imprudent, they bypass the first 25 verses of this chapter. That's a mistake. Now, after saying all that, I say this <laughs> a little reticently, I do believe there's a connection between Jesus' teaching here and Holy Communion, but it's not what people usually think. Jesus' teaching here doesn't look forward to Holy Communion, which he would institute on the night before his death. Holy Communion looks backward to Jesus' teaching here. Both the teaching and Holy Communion are about the same thing, the kind of relationship that Jesus has with his people. Uh, let's read part of the text. We'll begin with verse 27, read through verse 35. So John 6, verse 27, and reading through verse 35, do not, Jesus is speaking, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the work God requires. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. So they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who, and that could be translated, and I think it should be, that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am, and that's the emphatic I am that we looked at last week. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. <clears throat> so first question, what was the sign linked to this teaching? It was the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus somehow fed 5,000 people, not including women and children, with just five loaves of bread and two fish. It was a miracle. It was a sign. It pointed to something. After the miracle, people in the crowd began talking about Jesus' identity. Uh, some of them said, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. The prophet they had in mind was an end-time figure promised by Moses. God's going to send a, a prophet like me. Then, after that, and this is significant, some of the crowd, this is verse 15, cooked up a plan to make Jesus king. Here was their reasoning. In ancient times, the king was thought of as the one who was finally responsible to give his people food. Jesus, so that's part of the reason why famine was such a terrible thing in the ancient world, because famine had political implications. Jesus had just demonstrated his ability to provide food, so they decided to make him king. Going out into the wilderness, which is where all of this took place, the beginning of chapter 6 takes place, 
and declaring oneself the Messiah King was the opening move in every would-be Messiah's playbook. These people are following the playbook. Jesus isn't. He slips away from the crowds before they have a chance to put their plan into action. When they finally realize that Jesus has left and he isn't coming back, they go looking for him. It's with that as a backdrop. The idea that Jesus might be the coming king who will provide for his people. That we get the teaching in John 6. Can't separate the teaching from what happened before it. Now, is this usually the case in the New Testament? The backdrop has a backdrop. The context comes in context, Old Testament context. And the Old Testament context is multi-layered. So the first layer is from Exodus, where we have Jewish refugees lately escaped from Egypt, subsisting on a strange bread-like substance that they find on the ground each morning. They call it manna, manna from heaven. So that's the first layer. The second layer comes from a number of places, but principally Isaiah chapter 25, the teaching about the New Age banquet. In Isaiah 25, God poetically speaks about the banquet he will host. When he inaugurates his kingdom, the New Age begins, and death itself will be no more. That's significant. See, people in Jesus' time believed the New Age would begin with the arrival of the Messiah King, And the people in John chapter 6 think Jesus might be that king. Okay, you see how all of this fits together? Now there's another layer, an extra-biblical layer to the background of this scene. There's a stream of teaching flowing through rabbinic literature that connects the manna in the, the wilderness, Exodus, to the New Age banquet in Isaiah which was supposed to occur when Messiah arrived. Some rabbis taught that the Messiah king would feed his people manna again, the bread of heaven, and he would do it at the New Age banquet. And the people who ate it would then live forever. So it was a magical Harry Potter kind of theology. But you can see where the idea comes from. The rabbi said that eating the manna would make people deathless. And in the great banquet passage of Isaiah, what does God do? He takes away death forever. On this mountain, he, the Lord, will destroy the sheet, the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. With the magical view of manna that people held, it was natural for them to conclude that God's king would give people manna at the messianic banquet so they would never die, thus inaugurating the new age, the resurrection, and the ultimate defeat of death. That's what's behind people's request in John chapter 6, verse 34, when they say literally, Lord, give us this bread all the time. So from now on, feed us the bread that if people eat, they don't die. With that in mind, look at chapter 6, verse 30 and 31. So they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? 
Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. You see what they're asking Jesus to do? They want him to prove that he's the Messiah King who feeds God's people the bread of heaven. The ironic thing is, he was the Messiah King, but he couldn't give the people what they wanted without hurting them in the process. They were all wrapped up in physical things, not spiritual ones, in political kingdoms, not the kingdom of God. They wanted a Messiah King who would live up to their expectations and accomplish their goals. But Jesus wasn't interested in being that kind of king. They asked Jesus to feed them the bread of life. He told them he was the bread of life. And they didn't know what to think. They wanted Jesus to change the world around them. Jesus wanted to change them. They weren't interested in that. That's not what they wanted. From my perspective, things haven't changed much. We still want Jesus to change our circumstances and leave us unchanged. And he's still not going to do that. If that's what we're after, he'll slip away from us just like he slipped away from them. So let me recap for us what's going on in John chapter 6. After the feeding of the 5,000, the people who have been desperately waiting for the Messiah King to appear. You have to understand their setting, being living in their own land, but under the oppression of a hostile foreign power. They want the Messiah to come and rescue them, and they think they may have found him in Jesus, the one who can feed people. They try to force the revolution to begin immediately by proclaiming Jesus king. But Jesus refuses to cooperate, and he slips away before they get a chance to put their plan into action. They come and find him, and they ask him what they must do. This is verse 28. What must we do to work the works of God? What's our part in this? What conditions do we need to meet before God will bring the new age? Jesus tells them the one work God requires of them is to believe in him. They ask him to give them a sign of his messiahship so they can believe him. If he would give them the bread of heaven, which God's messiah will provide, they'd believe. That's verses 30 and 31. Jesus tells them he is the bread of heaven. They don't like that answer, and they gripe about it. That's verse 41. Instead of offering them a revolution, he offers them himself, and that's not what they have in mind. If ever people were at cross purposes, it was Jesus and these would-be revolutionaries. They know what they want. The end of Roman rule, dominance, guaranteed provision. Jesus knows what he wants. A people who come to him, who trust him. A people who enter into a new kind of life and form a new kind of society around him. They wanted a kingdom of God tailor-made for them. Jesus wanted a people tailor-made for the kingdom of God. People who would trust him. Now, there's more in this that can help us live as Jesus' people. But in this sermon, we want to focus our attention on the centrality of Jesus. People were hoping to use Jesus as a means to get what they wanted. That's why they came to him. 
They want to use him as a means to get what they wanted, provisions of food, political power, uh, freedom. Jesus refused, not because they wanted too much, but because they wanted too little. God's plan for them was much bigger than that. But the only way they could enter that plan is through trusting him. Trust or believe is one of the most important words in this discourse in John chapter 6. It occurs nine times just in the discourse. If you include words that represent the concept of trust, the total reaches 23 times. So this is a big deal. The work of God, verse 29, is to believe or to trust the one he sent. The one who believes or trusts in Jesus will never go without provision. That's verse 35. The one who believes will have the life that enables him or her to live into the age to come. Those are verses 40 and verse 47. Faith, believing or trusting in Jesus, is the beginning of the life God has for a person. It's also the end to which that life moves. It's also the dynamic of that life all along the way. So in St. Paul's phrase, it is from faith first to last. The life God plans for us is totally Jesus-centered. If you have salvation without Jesus, you're being saved from the wrong things for the wrong things. If you have a kingdom without Jesus, you're in the wrong kingdom. If your hope is not centered in Jesus, you have the wrong hope. Some of the people to whom Jesus was speaking would have said that they did believe in Jesus. I mean, John calls them his disciples. Some of them, not all of them. You remember back in chapter 2, this is verse 23. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. Believed in his name as a Hebraism. Believed in him. They believed in Jesus. They believed in him, but John goes right on to say that though they believed in him, Jesus did not believe in them. Do you ever realize that? It's not just important if you believe in Jesus. It's important if he believes in you. The NIV says Jesus would not entrust himself to them. That's verse 24, the very next verse. But entrust and believe are exactly the same word. Exactly. They trusted Jesus, but Jesus didn't trust, wouldn't entrust himself to them. What, see, what people loosely call the Christian life isn't realized because a person in some sense, in any sense, trusts Jesus. You know, as a pastor, that's one of the difficulties for me. I ask people, have you ever trusted Jesus? And and they say, yes. Everybody says yes. Hardly anybody says no. What does that mean? The Christian life isn't realized because a person, in some loose sense, trusts Jesus, but because Jesus entrusts himself to that person. That's the genuine Christian life. The same kind of thing that was happening in John 2 is happening in John 6. The people believe in Jesus as a means to an end, but Jesus does not believe in them. He won't entrust himself to them. And it turns out that he was right not to. So verse 66, from this time, Many of his disciples, these are the people who said, we believe in him. 
turned back and no longer followed him. They didn't get what they wanted. He wasn't the kind of Messiah they were looking for. So they turned back. They gave up on him. That's how it always goes when people try to use Jesus, religion, as a means to an end. Sooner or later, they give up. They pretty much stop going to church. What good did it ever do me? I had that conversation with a woman three or four weeks ago. I'm not going to church anymore. What good did it ever do me? And I agree with her. It, I don't think it did any good. Some people even become agnostics or atheists. They tell themselves that Christianity doesn't work. But I think, how would they know? They never tried it. They never entrusted themselves to Jesus. You can tell whether a person's entrusted himself or herself to Jesus. They actually do what he says. Now, there may be a process in that. There will be a process in that. There'll be a lot of unlearning and learning to do. But they intend to do what Jesus says. <clears throat> it's estimated this year, this year alone, Americans will spend nearly $80 billion on prescription drugs. $80 billion. I've read that on average, half of people with chronic illnesses won't follow their doctor's instructions and take the medicines correctly. Half of all people. So people spend $80 billion on drugs, and then they won't do what their doctor tells them when they take it. And what's interesting to me is that even doctors only take their medicine as directed 79% of the time. The guys who give the directions. Many of those people will give up on the drug and say it doesn't work. Just as many people give up on Jesus and say he doesn't work. But they never did the one thing God requires. What is the one thing God requires? To trust the one he sent. Now they may have trusted in a plan of salvation. But they didn't trust the Savior. They trusted church, church membership. But they didn't trust the head of the church. They trusted their feelings, but they didn't trust Jesus' words. The full, abundant life the Bible depicts is not only made possible by Jesus, it is a life with Jesus. A life lived with him. Now, if that's not the kind of life you want, you want to live like everyone else, and the Christian life is not like everyone else's life. But you want to live like everyone else, only go to heaven when you die. You need to know that you didn't try the Christian life and find it wanting. You didn't want the Christian life and you left it untried. Or you didn't know what it was. The Christian life is Christ in me, the hope of glory. How do we trust Jesus in a way that will allow him to entrust himself to us, which is the power behind the Christian life. How do we feed on the bread of life? What does that mean? That's what we're going to look at next week. So come back. Read John 6 again. Just get this thing in your head. And then we'll see more about how this applies to us in practice. Now let's pray. God, I pray you'll open up a door for us to walk through into the experience of what you have in mind for us, into the reality of Christ 
in us. That you should humble yourself. And take the form of a servant. And become obedient even unto death. Is astounding. But then that you would humble yourself and live in people like us. We're just amazed and we praise you. We praise you, O Lord. O God, who is just like Jesus, we bless your name. Amen.